I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 76. And I can't believe these words are going to come out of my mouth. Season 4 of Talking Golf History. Today on our show, we have a special guest, Al Guyberger, the first golfer to break 60 in a PGA Tour event. If you came for the 59 you'll want to stay for the PGA Championship and the Players' Championship victories, and how Guy Berger played an unbelievable role in the breakup between the PGA of America and the PGA Tour. Last but not least, Mr. 59 talks in some depth about that magical round and how he managed to stay in the zone. Before we start, I wanted to share my special appreciation to La Quinta Country Club for allowing us to use your boardroom for our show. I was overwhelmed by the beauty of your club and the hospitality of your membership. Thank you. Every story has a beginning. So let's begin this one. Al Guyberger, a.k.a. Mr. 59, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Golf History. Thank you. Thanks for having me. uh, I've been out uh, on the tour a long time, since 1960, so I guess I have a few stories. I hope so. (laughs) I think we'll have a good time today. Probably forgotten a few, too. (laughs) That's okay, too. Um, When did you start playing golf? What what age? Do you remember? Actually, I started real young. I've got a picture of me at 18 months holding a golf club with a split grip swinging in my backyard. I lived in Sacramento. My uh, I think I was an accident because I have two older brothers, eight and ten years older, and uh, I think I was an accident that came along. And my mother used to say, "I'm not giving up any more of my golf." I'm, and she would drag me up as soon as she could, start dragging me to the little nine-hole municipal course where they all they played. My dad played too. They were. They were a golfing family. So That's both really were, cool. Both yeah. played golf and they loved it. And you know, my mother would be like chairman of the rules committee or president of the women's club or something like that. And my dad was always involved. So I was just around it. (laughs) Yeah. What, what inspired you in your early days of golf? Was it just watching your parents or was there a, a player at the club that kind of caught your eye? Well, we had a good, we had a, uh, like a caddy shack and we had like a, a modern, an old day version of a first tee program. We didn't have a program, but in Sacramento, California, uh, it was a little nine-hole course called William Land, and we lived about a block away, and, uh, I, and I'd end up going up there on my bike, and I either left my clubs there or carried them on my shoulder, I don't know, <laughs> and uh, hung out there all summer, and there was kind of a group of us, like like I say, uh, an old-day version of the modern-day first tee. You Love know? it, yeah. we, we just hung around there all day, you know, and the pro helped us a little bit. You know, we all had our own uh, shag bag of golf balls, 
you know, you always look for balls to go in your shag bag, and I tell them nowadays, shag bag, they have no idea. Nobody knows, right, yeah. <laughs> and you'd always look for better ones, so your shag bag would get better, and then you marked them. Well, then they didn't have Sharpies and things like that. I used fingernail polish. So Really? So, so when you're out on a field where other guys or people are hitting uh, their their uh, their shag bag, you could separate them. That was your only way of marking because no other pen would stay on a ball. So I remember fingernail polish. That's Sharpies. a cool little trick. And yeah. Then Sharpie came along many years later. Changed the game. Was it? Was there a moment in those early days where you realized, like, hey, I'm going to be pretty good at this sport? Do you remember a moment where you, maybe a tournament? Yeah, because in Sacramento, I won. I was. I was eight years old, and I won the 12 and under division. And I guess I started thinking I was a pretty good player. <laughs> and, and we lived in Sacramento till age 15. And I'd, I'd already started winning you know, high school matches and different junior tournaments and stuff like that. But the interesting thing is <clears throat> we moved when I was 15. Well, I hadn't gone through... You might say you play at a certain level, your game grows grow slowly, but all of a sudden your growth spurt comes. And I moved to, my parents moved to Santa Barbara, which was, if you know much about Santa Barbara, that's the place to live. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't know I was going to paradise. And, I, and when I got down there, I was invited to the, to play on the Northern California golf team against the South. Well, I was now living in the South, but the only way I could go to the tournament was to accept the North. We didn't <laughs> tell anybody. We just, Love it, right. So now I go up there and play in the state junior, and we, it was very unusual junior. I don't know how they did it. We played Harding Park, where the PGA oh, was. Wow. That yeah. was. That was a California Country Club, which is a great course, Peninsula Club. Oh, wow. And we finished on Olympic Club. Four different courses. Four great and I courses. Up, and I'm winning the state junior at age 15. Wow. <laughs> so you knew and, you were pretty good by then. Southern Cal <laughs> they were all mad because I'm playing. I played for the North. Played on the wrong on, team. On their team the following day. That I love fun. it. I love it. Yeah. And, and so how, how did that take you? That took you into college? Where did you go to school? Yeah, I went to... Um, Okay, we moved to Santa Barbara. That's kind of funny, too. Uh, and my mother, she wanted to make sure her son, you know, she was kind of, she goes to the high school. Do you have a golf team? And they said, no, but we can get one together. Well, we all played in Santa Barbara uh, at Montecito Country Club. We were all, except for a couple of guys who were caddies out at the Valley Club. And we had enough for a team, a good team. We knew they were good. And so uh, they put this team together, and we, we nobody would come up and play us out of L.A. or Southern Cal. You were playing out of the Valley Club of Montecito? What's the At the Valley Club of Montecito? Yeah, that was. Like the Alistair McKenzie course. Yeah, that was, oh, one, wow. that was one of our, uh, 
one-day-a-week courses for oh. high school. Why? Because our coach was a member there. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already envious of your childhood. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I didn't realize, but yeah, that's uh, the Valley Club of Montecito. You're right. One of the best courses in it's Florida or in all of California. It's not the Valley Club. It's the Valley Club of Montecito. <laughs> and then I played at Montecito Country Club. Uh, that's where the middle class <laughs> played. But w- we had such a good team, uh, we cleaned everybody down in L.A. And won as, we won as far as the CIF would go. You know, they didn't go to Northern Cal and all that then. But we had a great team. I, had a, a, I was first and maybe second because our, another player was really good on our team. He shot well. And but the story I'm getting to, our third man was a guy named Chuck Schwab. Wow. Lee Charles Schwab. Wow. He was third man. You played with Charles a, Schwab. Yes. He was my, and he turned out to be my best friend in high school. We'd trade cars and rides to the Montecito Club and stuff. And, and uh, he was third man on our team. And then I think he and I, because the one guy graduated, he and I were partners the uh, uh, my senior year. So I was only there in two years in Santa Barbara, junior and senior. And um, and Chuck went off to Stanford. <laughs> he did okay. He did. Yeah, we've yeah. heard from that guy since. Yeah, right? he's done all right. A and, different route, but did okay. And I went up near there to a college called Menlo College. That's right next door to Palo Alto where Stanford is. So <clears throat> I saw Chuck a little bit while we were up there. Uh, that That was my famous friend, Growing up story. Yeah. So what was college like? College golf specifically. Oh, and then I went to Menlo. Menlo was two years. Then I went to USC. Oh, Southern, okay. Southern Cal. Nice. We, had, we went down there because I went down there because all my buddies were playing for SC and we were trying to get a good team so we could beat Houston, which would win every year. They would stockpile all these players and win every year. So we were doing our version of stockpiling, which, and, uh, we choked in the end. We finished third, though. But we yeah, had a good, made a good run. We had a good team. Uh, we had Bud Bradley, who stayed amateur, and uh, but he won the British Seniors. He stayed golf through his whole year. And Bob McAllister, who played on the tour and won once or twice. So, uh, and then we had uh, two or three other really good players. You know, like L.A. City champion was our fourth man, and. We really had a good, strong team, but it wasn't good enough to beat Houston. Houston was still they, top-notch, they, yeah. They, they had everybody. At, uh, so I, I had a good college. We had a great coach. Coach, he's probably in your history, if you look up coaches. Stan Wood is his name. Yes, and he is quite a character. Uh, but uh, everybody loves Stan, and, and he made playing on the golf team a lot of fun, and his motto was, uh, we don't win many matches, but we have a lot of fun. It, he really meant the opposite. But <laughs> <laughs> fact, it was back then, uh, I guess he can't get in trouble now. He was president of the Golf Coach Association, and he spent most of the time during a match in the bar. <laughs> nowadays, Motivating. He, nowadays, he would be... Yeah, he's, he was thinking it through. He yeah, took his time. He even... Uh, he even bought beer for the team. I can, I can tell all this because he's 
and he would buy cases of beer and, and players from other teams. They were having uh, the pack, pack, well, it's pack 12 now. It was the pack eight. And, uh, and he, he'd invite other team members. All the teams loved to stand. Just a good old time. He was. He was Hanging out with USC. Style. Like he said, that's way if you're drinking, I know where you are. Well, yeah, you're you're with me, <laughs> right? Yeah, you're not at the bars. I'm supplying but, the alcohol. Yeah, it sounds. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah, wouldn't nowadays, fly today. That coach would be gone. So yeah, he'd fast. be head spinning. <laughs> he'd be gone. Head spinning. We I talked to him, uh, one of the players was there. Mark File was yesterday when I played the the thing for Dave Stock with Dave Stockton, and uh, we started talking about Stan Wood. Well, he wouldn't last very long in coaching nowadays, but then he was president of the Golf Coaches Association. That's hilarious. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> That's awesome. So you joined after that, you joined the tour in 1960 and joined one of the, during one of the greatest times in golf history. Jack Nicklaus was playing in the 1960 U.S. Open as an amateur. Arnold Palmer was at the height of his powers. Gary Player had already won one of his nine majors. And on top of that, out of the big three, you had Ben Hogan and Sam Snead were still playing at a high level on tour. Yeah, I saw Sam a lot more, and I played with him, but I never played with Hogan. He was really cutting down to practically nothing. He was at the stage where if he did play and he was hitting balls on the range, we stopped and walked down. Did you really? Were you watched. one of those that would watch him? I did that in Memphis. I remember doing that. Went down and watched him hit balls. Which what, what was that like? Like I, I had, uh, I've had a couple people. Well, we that, only would see him once in a while. Yeah, but I mean, what's it like watching Ben Hogan hit balls? People can't do that nowadays. So, what was that experience like? Was there well, something we didn't different? Have a lot of cameras or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. All I remember is the extension of how far. His club seemed to go through the ball and out further extended. And yeah. I never know how he did it. Maybe that was his secret. I don't know. <laughs> he just, that straight, like straight two arms through, just through it. Through it. Se it seemed to go out further where my little arms don't seem to go here. He was way out there. And that, that's what I remember always watching because uh, his swing looked different that yeah. way. Next time you watch it, you'll see yeah, I've heard he always sat up on the right side of the range because yeah. that way, if people were staring at his swing, I, I he wouldn't at, have to see him doing it. I was at the it. old Colonial Country Club in Memphis, the old one. Yeah. And he and I was on the driving range, and he came down and set his balls down on the right-hand corner, just like you said. And, uh, we, and then a few of us or several of us kind of walked our way down there to, to watch him. Now, I say Colonial because... They sold the city, bought that or development bought that whole course because it was just a square course like they used to make all yeah. square piece of property and built Colonial Country Club out of town. And that way they got more property for some houses and, and the course. And that's where I shot the 59. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you ever find yourself in the early days, like 1960, 1961? I think you won in 1963. Did you ever find yourself? Starstruck. I imagine you did with Ben Hogan if you had that time to walk down. But yeah. were there any other players out there where you were just like, as a young player? Oh, I think. Wow, look at yeah. that guy. Now I played in the LA Open when it came to town two or three years uh, while I was in college, and I was low amateur two years. They made that a big deal at the LA Open. The low amateur celebrated they, it. They encouraged 
good amateurs to play. And I was paired with Arnold Palmer the last day. As an amateur. As an amateur. Wow. My senior yeah. year in college, and I beat him. Oh, my gosh. He's <laughs> like a movie star. I, and I finished fifth in the tournament. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that had to be something else, right? Yeah, that, that was when I... Wow, maybe I can go out on the tour. That was I think everybody has that moment, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I was yeah, Arnold, you know, right then was he was at the height of his charge, yeah. the charge and everything uh and uh yeah, I remember always I was nervous, but I don't know. I I don't know. I kind of enjoyed a little bit of that, but I was a little starstruck. I remember the uh, First one I ever played with on the LA Open was Lionel Airbear. And, uh, and then a Jay brother, Jay became, Jay Bear became one of my good friends. And uh, oh, I know, my first LA Open, as a pro, I got the Hong Kong flu. I didn't play. <laughs> you look it up, you have to go back. You'll see the Hong Kong flu was going around. And I woke up the, the first day with the Hong Kong flu. And so I ended up skipping that and Euro Belinda, and I started it at the Crosby. Then, uh, oh wow, weeks. that was my first week. Wow, and I was paired. That's a pretty good week. Yeah, and I paired. No, a one hundred dollars made the cut, one hundred dollars. Uh, but my celebrity was Johnny Weismiller. No way. Remember Tarzan? Tarzan, Olympic swimming and champion. The thing that caught me off guard was I didn't realize it but when he hit it out in the trees and went over there the gallery went over there and then he'd hit it out he'd give his big ah, did, his he really? big did he really did oh, yeah, he really he did it all that. the time it was so funny it, uh, it, it was also rumored that he was the last man to swim in the pool at seminole golf club oh <laughs> that pool doesn't exist anymore i was there last year no more a pool you know it's the pool that no one ever uses but they said he was the last one to swim in that pool because nobody <laughs> swims in it i love that story about him yeah, see, I used to look going to USC. I played out at Lakeside, and that's where all the oh, yeah, yeah. celebrities, Hollywood so celebrities, I yeah. would see Johnny Weissmiller out there and several other. Uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford, there's a name for you, yeah. uh, country singer. And I don't know why, but every Thursday when he taped, he would live film his show or that on Thursday nights, and he, and he and I played golf Thursday day, the two of us. And I realized later, wow, that was really an honor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But do you think that helped you? I mean, if you're around all those celebrities at a very young age, do you think that helps you? Like, did that help you acclimate to the PGA Tour in a way? I guess a little bit because Southern California, I mean, they were all over the place, especially like Lakeside. There were a bunch of them. That was the, that was the star's club and uh you know glenn campbell and and mac davis uh i used to play with all those guys i know couldn't have hurt right i guess not yeah right yeah because yeah, that's why they belong to that club because that was kind of like their club in a yeah. way their little now retreat it's kind of spread around it's not quite the same but yeah still a nice course though but at lakeside so what was it like? So in 1960, you joined the PGA Tour. What was life like in, in the 1960s on tour? This is before the PGA of America and the PGA Tour split. That was like 1969. Yeah, yeah. So 
What is that? What was oh, that like in the 60s? Remind me, and I'll tell you a story about that split. Let Go me, ahead. You can do it right now. Right now, and then take me back. Yes, okay. absolutely. Happy okay, to. the tour was growing stronger and stronger, and the PGA was kind of like in their way. They began to realize it, and and they kept trying trying to they got arguments over this, over that, whatever it might be, and. So the players finally decided they wanted to split. And this is my contribution to that. Now, I, didn't, I wasn't part of the group of guys that were on the committees that tried to do it. I went to the, the meetings where all the players would all get up and yell and, and <laughs> right. uh, do nothing. But uh, I had a roommate in college. He, he was a management consultant, and he, and he uh, became a... And so he, I was at his house one day. We stayed friends. We're still friends. Uh, he, uh, uh, he said, what, Al, what's all this problem you guys are having? What, what's the problem? See, he's a management consultant. So I tried to explain it in my feeble way of doing it. And I told him, and he said, well, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to come out and take a... a Whatever they call it, where it interviews everybody in golf, from from the gallery to the PGA professional to the touring professional to anybody to figure out what the problem is here. And I'm like, oh, maybe you're the one we need because he says I I kind of have an idea what's wrong right now. But he says oh, he. Uh, so I, in one of our meetings where we were all yelling and screaming at each other and nobody going anywhere, and uh, I got up and said something, which I usually did not get up and say anything. And I told him my story about my friend, a management consultant. He said he would come out free, pay his expenses. And they went for it, which I'm shocked. And they went for that. And two weeks later, it was settled. And the president, <laughs> the lawyer that the lawyer that we had for the players, yeah. all he did was copy what the recommendations no were. No way. From, yes. Oh, I, I not have, a bad paying job. <laughs> my friend made up, and I went, now that was my contribution wow. to the, to, uh, and I have it as proof. I could show it to anybody that, that the, the management consultant, this was their recommendation and everything, and the lawyer made him look like he was a genius, and it was really. <laughs> well, I hope he got he got paid for that, or did he, he got just do he it got free? his expenses. Okay. Yeah, that just is he just did that for his expenses out yeah, of a favor to you. A lot of the game, he was a golfer. He yeah. wasn't quite good enough to play golf at SC, but he was a baseball player. He played on the baseball team. Yeah, boy, I bet the PGA of America didn't like you know you after that <laughs> recommendation. They probably didn't even know about it. You know what? They probably didn't. Yeah. I've told uh, Dean Beeman, I said, I said, you know what? I'm sort of responsible for your job. Yeah. I had Dean Beeman and on the show like two years like, ago. He went, what? What? No, he didn't know anything about it. That is and so funny. Joe Dye. When Joe Dye was our first commissioner. Yeah. Dean Beeman, Tim Fincham. I told him once, I said, nobody knows or remembers, but I have the proof. And I can show it to you. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, you, that's a definitive part of golf history, right? Is it that is. Break. 
Right. The PGA of America and the PGA Tour split off into two different directions. They did, and I guess they really needed it because, and, and the tour kept growing rapidly then, and actually PGA of America started growing. Absolutely, too, but, but and they still, as part of that, yeah. Break, and then they've kind of come back to where we, yeah, we try and say they're one. It's very confusing to the public because they both say PGA, right? One's PGA Tour, one hundred percent, and yeah. they, the PGA of America, took with them, oddly enough, the PGA Championship, yeah, and yeah. the Ryder Cup. Some people don't even realize that, that they are in, in control of those yeah, two things. people don't realize that. That was part of that negotiation. Yeah, and so whenever there's a complaint of something, the, the public says, well, you're, you're, they're, you're the same group. No, they're not. They're not. Uh, at, uh, anyway. At, uh, so you are to thank or to blame based on how <laughs> yeah. your perspective is. But it's not like me just telling a story. I could go home right now, open up my file, and take out the that is cool the thing the original and, documents. Yeah, the one where all what he all his interviews, what gallery regular everyday person that came to tournaments. How did you get them? Did he give them to you when you were done? Yeah, he printed up some copies. Wow, and you later. still have them? Uh, yeah. Wow. For that reason, so I can. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I yeah. love it. <laughs> That is fantastic. All right, let's go back. You were asking me to go back. So or, what or was tour like in the 1960s? I mean, I'm sure it was just like it is today. That's a joke. <laughs> yeah, except my plane is a car. <laughs> right? Your I car. St- I started out with my little, I had a deal with a local Chevy dealer, and he, we played golf together a lot at the Valley Club. He's mm-hmm. a member of the Valley Club, and he lent me a car. So for a couple of years, I drove that car, and we didn't know any different. We'd drive to, you know, Pebble Beach, then down to San Diego. Yeah. And then then we'd work our way to Phoenix and Tucson and then San Antonio. We'd gradually work our way a little different than it is now until you get down. Pretty soon you're in Florida with your car. And then, and then it's summertime, and you're back there, and you want to go home, and your car is there, so you'd hire a driver, either a caddy. Oh, really? Yeah. A caddy would drive it, or a, there were bonded drivers. I remember using that, but I said, I'm never driving across this country again. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, that's really, before, what, is that before the interstate system, or the interstate system was pretty new at that point? I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, the Eisenhower system, right? Going across the country, that's... I remember once I got invited, I won uh, to a Utah to play in Utah Open because a friend of mine... From school, he was the. He played on the uh, USC basketball team. He was the coach at uh, Utah, running Redskins. I think uh, he was the coach, and he'd always come out when I was in Phoenix or somewhere because mm-hmm. he'd have the team there and he'd bring the team out and they'd watch. But uh, he got the Utah Open to invite me in '60 or '61. Anyway, I won the Utah Open. That was that was an unofficial victory. Yeah, unofficial. Yeah. Well, y- your first official wasn't far from here, right? It was, I believe, it was the Ontario Open, mm-hmm. which is like sixty miles from where we sit. People think it's in Canada. I know. Uh, I, I'll be honest with you. When I first saw it, I was like, "Wow, it was up in Canada," and I was like, "I wonder if that's California." And you won a whopping. I mean, I'm wondering if you even still have the money from this because it was so much money. Three thousand five hundred dollars. 
Yeah. For winning so. a tour event. That's yeah. amazing, isn't it? Uh, Staggering. Open at Whispering Lakes Club. It's about 30 miles from here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to think how far purses have gone. I mean, this, you want $3,500 and now it'd be a million dollars. I'm sure the PGA uh, Tour yeah. would be happy to send you a check for a million to make up for that. <laughs> <laughs> they, all they do is stay quiet. They don't. They don't. We could go back on arguments with the PJ because then it got into the guys wanted retirement because they were independent, independent operators, and so they they couldn't because they were independent operators have a legitimate uh, insurance. like pension system and insurance, and, right? Yeah, and they finally were able to under the government laws because see the tour is a nonprofit. Yep. So-called nonprofit. Yeah, I think Dean Beeman took him into yeah. nonprofit, right? Yeah, and so you couldn't have a insurance and all that, but they figured out one. That, but anyway, when I retired, and when I got to age uh, sixty-five, I got a whopping one hundred and eighteen dollars a month from, oh. from the PGA Tour. <laughs> Insane, right? And. Uh, and I should have kept the last one of those. <laughs> you should have. No, but way back in 1983-4, that's when they made up the retirement things. So I started collecting on the senior tour. And the uh, senior tour was pretty good. I mean, I thought it was pretty good. But turns out now it, was, it started in when I was 65 and it ended when I was 75 it was an annuity well when do you need it the most after 75 and the, right the PGA Tour stays very quiet about the guys that kind of got caught that were kind of left out in the dark yeah when, when one was one insurance was starting it now now I have a son who he doesn't he won't even play hardly anymore and he won twice on the tour and he's got about eight different insurance programs. The, mm -hmm. the tour cup, that take fall season, this, that, that. Yeah. And, and he's just trying to keep it extended so that he gets to Keeps going. 65. But yeah. Anyway, it ended at 75. So, But it, don't you love it? My $118. $118. Got from, the, from the PJ. Tour. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, then their retirement was from the senior, which I... I, we had to accumulate money, and then we could take it later. That was gotcha. how it worked. But and that that was gone at at uh, seventy five. So you know, going back, we in nineteen sixty three, you made a good run. You made a run at the PGA Championship. You tied, I think, you tied fifth at uh, Dallas Athletic Club. Uh, Dallas. Oh, yeah. That, you were that, three years on tour. That was hot. Yeah, Miserable. hot. It was hot. It was crazy. Can you steamy. imagine August? Dallas, oh, I can't. Oh. But Did I finish fifth? You finished fifth. I was just curious. Like, I mean, that was your first top five in a major. Do you think that f was a like a stepping stone to realize not only can I play on tour, but I can take this to another yeah. level? All I remember is how hot it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, it could be the memory, right? Now, PGA of America had a five-year thing, and you had to be become an official member of the PGA of America. Yeah. So, and that took five years. So when I turned in 1960 or the beginning of 60, I wouldn't have been able to even play till 
65. Then a guy named Jack Nicholas came along, and they sure did not. He's only two years uh, younger than I am. They sure didn't want to lose Jack no. in their championship. No. All of a sudden, the rule was changed. <laughs> I would have been in anyway. Cause, yeah. Yeah, but, you wouldn't have got in until 1965, right? Yeah, That's I would have had to wait five years. That's unbelievable. Those were some of the dumb rules that... They did have some. I mean, that's, that's why the players, yeah, were so upset with the PJ of America because, and had to break away. Well, they excluded a lot of foreign players initially up until that rule changed because they weren't members of the PGA. Yeah, right. so you couldn't even play. weren't yeah. even invited. Yeah, it's you know, totally or you could different. get a special exemption, which was rarely given. It was very strange, wasn't yeah. it? It was. They they changed a lot. That was, but it took that. That changing, I think, of the of the merging of the not merging, splitting of the of the two of the PGA of America and the PGA Tour to make that change. Yeah, which the public didn't understand it. They thought it was stupid that we were fighting ourselves. Uh, people would say things like, "They don't realize the Masters is the Masters. Yeah. They're themselves. It's not even the PGA we have Tour. Nothing to do with it. Yeah. And we would complain about their." Who could play, and and it was so bad. Everyone saw we got really almost ready to break away from the Masters. Really, all it did would have made us look bad because people think we're part of the Masters. Yeah, and we're not. They make all their own rules. So true. Yeah, it's very crazy. And the joke is, I'll tell this one: we would give them an idea for something for the Masters, this or that, and they would turn us down. But about two years later, they would put it in like it was their (laughs) idea. They still do that, for that matter. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, in 1966, you had a breakthrough, the PGA Championship. Most people might not know this about this, because it's, I think it's overshadowed by um, your 59. Uh, right. In 1966, you were playing Firestone Country Club. After the first round, you find your, found yourself tied with 54-year-old future Hall of Famer Sam Snead, yeah, right. who then took the lead from you in the second round. Before yeah. we jump into your major win... Can we talk about Sam Snead's remarkable longevity? I mean, eight years after that, at the age of 61, he finished top three in the 1977 PGA Championship. How is that even possible? What was it about Sam? 66 PGA. Yes, yes. No, yes. You said You're right. I think, did you say 77? That was the 50. Yeah, the 1977 PGA, he was 61 years old. And he he finished top three. Oh, oh, yeah. How could he do that? I mean, you, you played alongside of him. Was it... What was it about Sam Snead that allowed him to play such good golf that long? Well, that was when he switched to the... Yeah, he went uh, croquet style, and then he went side saddle. You had it in the magazine. Uh, I read about it, and I went, oh, my God, I was with Sam the day he changed. Really? To the when he putted between his legs. Croquet style, yes. You were right there. The third round, I I was paired with Sam, and, and he putted... Croquet, I guess was, was yeah, croquet called. style. Yeah, until was. they banned it, and then he went to side saddle, which is still legal today. Most people don't know that. I'll, I'll tell you a little story about Sam Snead. So I don't know if you know this, but uh, speaking of Sam Snead, did you know that he inadvertently picked against you for the 1966 PGA Championship? Here's what he said: He blew up and had a nine-hole practice round shooting 40. This was the day before, or a couple days before the tournament. When he walked off the course, he said to the press, 
you never would have thought that fella Guyberger would have won out here. <laughs> Referring to your 1965 American Golf Classic victory at Firestone. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. No, I didn't know he said that, but you're, that's right. I won there at Firestone in 65. It was called the American Golf Classic. Yeah. Did you, do you think that helped you for that PGA Championship? I didn't do you know think, he said it. <laughs> no, no, no. I guess, yes. Did you, do you think that victory the year no, before? I think he would say the course was so long. Yeah. It's a long, it was a monster, we called it. Over 7,000 yards. He, and I was this tall, skinny kid. He, he probably, yeah. Uh, you wouldn't imagine he would win here. Uh, but I seem to do better on the long courses where a par was a par. Yeah. So I won at Firestone twice and a few other big courses. Memphis well, was long, right? Yeah. Well, I shot to 59. Yeah. It was I over 7,200 yards. I there two years ago. I had to keep going to where my ball was and throw it way up. <laughs> I couldn't. It was a... I know it's a, and players keep coming to me today. And what? One of them, Mark File, I saw yesterday. He said, "I played there that week. I played that course. That course is a is a long, hard golf course." And that's nice to hear from other players because usually when somebody shoots a low round, oh, it's easy course. And, right. Absolutely. And I, uh, I hold a bunch of putts. That, that shortens the course a lot. Hundred percent. <laughs> so do you, do you think winning at Firestone the year prior in a tour event, do you think that gave you some confidence going into the 66 PGA Championship that you knew you could win there? It doesn't seem to always work that way, but that when you win the next week, year, but I guess that's true, and I can't deny it. I mean, I didn't come back thinking, oh, I'm going to win. No, I didn't. What was I going to tell you about? Oh, that's where... Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Started. That's right. Yeah, you you earned the nickname the peanut butter kid or Skippy or Skippy. Yeah, yeah Skippy. Yeah. Either one. I played for. A, I had a contract with Skippy. Right. So they called me Skippy because in '65 at the American Golf Classic, which was at Firestone. Okay, let's back up a week. PGA was the week before at Laurel Valley, home of Arnold Palmer. Right. And my wife was making, and I'm paired with Arnold, and I know that I need to eat food while I, I have hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. Yeah. Nobody knew what it was then, but my doctor knew, and he said, you have to eat during the round, so it keeps your blood sugar level. Now it's the cool thing, but... <laughs> Before Tiger had his granola bars and bananas, yeah, you had uh, your yeah, Skippy. That's all a spinoff of my peanut butter. That's right. Jump. He took it from you. That's yeah. He half his majors should are you know there he owes are, you. There still are several players that take peanut butter and jelly or peanut butter and something uh, today. Yeah. I, and because uh, it's the easiest to make up and put in your bag and it, doesn't, it holds fine. Doesn't go. Yeah. Everything else spoils. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, Okay, at Laurel Valley, I'm playing with Arnold, and it's his first two rounds, and it's his home course, home of Arnold Palmer. And my wife was making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for my daughter, who is now 55. <laughs> she is a little, a little four or five-year-old. <laughs> anyway, she was making a peanut butter jelly. I said, hey, make me one of those, and I'll take it with me because I'll never get near a refresh refreshment stand. And that's all I thought. I'll never get one with Arnold's mob out there. Right. 
So I took it around, and I on front nine I had half. The back nine uh, had another half, and I took it. The, I said, this is great. So I go down the next week to the American Golf Classic, 1965 American Golf Classic, and I won that, and the press noticed me taking the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They loved it. They were, the cameras were watching it, and they took, saw me taking it out of my bag. And, and uh, so then when I came back for the PGA, uh, they were ready for me. Skippy uh, and the peanut butter kid. Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> then it all started. Uh, and I had a nice contract. Well, I thought it was nice then. It was Skippy peanut butter. That's fantastic. And, uh, I, I have another quote from you from the 66 PGA Championship. This one's by Leo Peterson, the golf writer. He says, Al Guyberger, a pale, undernourished-looking Californian with the physical frame of a scarecrow mm-hmm. and the golfing touch of a master. <laughs> it says you weighed in at about 160 pounds and yet played four masterful rounds of golf, which was considered to be one of the toughest venues of a PGA championship. How do you, how do you take yeah, that? That's right. Is that I fair? Skinny. You're I told skinny, you I and, skinny and you lanky. Yeah. And, but it was funny. I hit, I'm a good, I was a good long iron player, two and three irons. I was really good. I don't know why. One iron, I even carried a one iron. And, Firestone was where you would hit a lot of twos and three irons. Now on the same holes, they're hitting oh, wedges. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It is. And I used to say, well, I, like number nine, I'm picturing that right now. Number nine, I used to, we used to hit it to the top of the hill, and then I'd hit a two or three iron in there. Now they just blow it way down at the it's bottom and hit a wedge in. Yeah. <laughs> what stands out? Do you remember any of those moments from the 66 PGA Championship? Is there anything that stands out that may have been a, like a turning moment for you that you thought you had a pretty good chance at winning a major? Let's see. I was uh, playing with Snead would be one, but uh, I was leading going into the last round. Yeah. I don't remember how many. How many. <laughs> I think Snead shot a 74, so you had a couple stroke lead maybe off the top of my head. Yeah, back then, see, par was 70 there. I shot 284, one by four. Yeah. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but the last day, I had the lead. I don't know why, two, three. I, don't, I can't remember. And uh, I, I bogeyed, maybe bogeyed the first hole. I struggled on the second. Third hole's a tough hole. Anyway, I had a few bogeys to begin with. And the, and the fourth hole was tough. Fifth hole is a par three. Right. They've rebuilt it a little bit since then. Uh, and I made about a 12, 15 footer f- for a birdie. And the reason I'm telling you this story because Ken Venturi was announcing, and whenever we used to be somewhere and he would tell a story, he came out and he says, you know, your turning point was when you made that putt on the fifth hole. You went on from there and ran away with it. And I went, wow, he remembers that. that <laughs> right, that is amazing. I was more amazed that he remembered it. It was true. Yeah. Because I was like two or three over by then, and I made that great putt on the fifth hole. Part How long of a putt was that? 
10 to 15, say 13 right in there. Do you, do you, did you feel at that moment that it was a pivotal or were you just trying to knock it in? Do you, does that no, process? I went on from there. Yeah. I went on from there and made a few more birdies that nine. And then, then I was had three or four shot league backside, you know, and I remember saying, just, you know, it's yours to win. Just keep going, make bars. Yeah. Nobody was, nobody would run up and catch you on a course like that because, true, as you can see, with two, 280 winning it and 284 second place. Uh, the year before, I won it with 280 and 284 was the. So is that amazing? Yeah. So you just that. had a, a kind of a mental idea of like, listen, it's yeah. mine to lose. Don't lose it. Yeah. Just, right. Just, yeah. I don't know. I was no great psychological genius or anything. I just remember, just keep playing steady. And the, yeah, we didn't we didn't have people psychologists. So yeah. Right. All that stuff. Right. Well, let's just. I mean, for the for the average golfer, uh, well, ninety nine point nine nine percent of golfers will never understand the pressure of winning a major championship. How would you describe that pressure? I mean, and when you're out there in the moment, you know, maybe you're, you're in your final round, maybe right before that birdie, like, what does that feel like? You know, like as a player, is it, do, is it jitters? Is it like butterflies or no, is it? When you're going, it's like when I shot 59, when you're going, you're, kind of in what they want to call the zone. So you're a little bit like that. You're you're just floating along, things are going great, you know. Anything could happen, but uh and does a lot. So yeah. uh but you know you I hit the ball so good that I, that's really what we you go by. I was hitting it so good that I uh was relying on that. You and, knew you could trust yeah what you and were I remember doing. how it happened. It's always when you win a tournament or something, somebody, well, I, you had a swing key. Something. Yeah, trig- absolutely. Triggered. Yes. That's the way yes. we used to be. Yeah. Not your coach told you something. <laughs> right. I, on the first hole at Firestone, in a practice round, I hit it in the rough on the right. I'll never forget. And I had to swing extra hard and really make sure I stayed with the ball through it. And I hit this great shot up on the green. I went, wow, I like that swing. And I went with that swing that feeling of that swing the rest of the all four rounds all four that was a practice round when i found when i did that so i did it the whole week so just go through it kind of what full speed and stay down on it since then i figured out anytime i was thinking of something in my swing that made me feel further ahead like hogan like I didn't realize it, but yeah, like, yeah. But just past the ball, acceleration through the ball. When I had a tip that was making me kind of do that, uh, that's when I played well. Yeah. When I played well at Colonial in Fort Worth, same thing. Uh, I had a, a friend of mine had given me a tip. I don't even remember what the tip was, but it made me feel that more extension, extension through yeah. the ball. Yeah. And really, that's what you want, acceleration through the ball. That's, so you can put it in any, any way you want. But <laughs> I love that. But it was because I was in the grass. So once in a while, I used to go to the back of the practice tee or the side where the grass was heavy and hit two or three balls 
to get that feeling. Yeah, of, that kind of lag into the ball and like extension it does. It through makes, it. It makes you, it makes you lag, accelerate, and keep extending through the, to get through the grass. Oh, I can't remember the pro. Uh, I've I should, heard others say it. Too. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the pro who who gave this analogy. I think it was his swing coach, and oh, gosh darn it, I, I'm blanking. I, I feel terrible. But what he his his a professional said, I want you to go out there in that field of weeds and mow yeah, basically yeah. like a half acre. Yeah. Just kept, like, not even with a ball. Just That's chop right. grass. So they're doing the same thing. Yeah. And other pros, I've seen them do it and try and hit it out of that grass. It just gives you a feeling of, instead of being a little flippy at the ball, yeah, 100%. You're, you're really, it, it gives you that firmness through the... Fact, I better remember that. That's I'm thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's why they that, invented those you know, impact bags, right? tip. Somebody will hear on on this recording here on this interview. They'll hear this and they'll go right out and use it because you can. Yeah. It it doesn't take any manipulation of this and that and all that stuff. Yeah, you're not thinking about yeah my elbow needs to be here. No, you're, you're just trying to get the club accelerating through the grass. Yeah. Well, between that and peanut butter sandwiches, I think yeah, we just made right. somebody's day, right? Right. That's funny. Yeah, you ago. lived it, right? <laughs> you lived it. Your uh, seventh win on tour uh, came in the second ever Tournament Players Championship at Colonial 1975, eight years before the Players Championship found its permanent home at TPC Sawgrass. Can you tell me, what was it like to play in that second ever Tournament Players Championship? Well, uh, we didn't know what it was. It was a brand new tournament. Yeah, Nicholas had won it the year before, Nicholas right? Nicholas won it at... Uh, not Atlanta Athletic Club, Atlanta Country Club. I think he won it there. And by then we were starting. This is our tournament. This it's is not the PGA Championship. The PGA. This, this is, is yeah. our tournament. And, and we were at Colonial again in horrible time of the year. It was hot. Oh, as yeah. Hell. Awful time. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm better when I'm suffering. Apparently, you like long courses and hot heat, right? Yeah. If if I don't collapse, I'm good. Because you know why? And I tell people that helped me when I shot the 59. Yeah. It was 102 that day and high humidity. And I wasn't thinking about what score I shot. I was worried about survival. And that's a distraction method psychologists use to... I I didn't care what I shot. You know, when you start counting your stroke and and you're very conscious of your of your score, you're dead. When you count your score, you're dead. Put it that way. At the end of eleven, how many under under? I couldn't tell you today how many under I was at the end of eleven. I'd have to sit here and yeah and go count. Go well, I wasn't hole. about to be counting that day. I was just. Uh, making went birdie a streak in the middle of the round went birdie 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 that ended the front nine and I chipped it in for an eagle on about just off the green about a 20 yarder for an eagle on my 10th hole first hole of colonial but my 10th hole that day and then in the next hole I Ran in a 20-footer and then another one. By then, I'm looking at Dave Stockton. I'm apologizing. I don't know what's, you know. 
But you, if you asked me then to say how many under par are you, I couldn't have told you. That, yeah. That's the story I'm getting at. The worst thing you can do in golf is count your score. Uh, Pro-Am teams, they're doing good, and they go, oh, huh, how many under are we? And they exactly. go, oh, oh, we're doing pretty good, but a lot of the other teams are doing good. I yeah. blow, because I, once they know yeah. 15, and they got two holes left. Everything gets they tight. They go apart. They go, yeah. Yeah. So it's funny I you was say that. distracted with the heat. In other words, I was on the verge of maybe collapsing, so I didn't care about my score. That yeah. helped. <laughs> anyway. You know, it's funny. I, I tell a couple of buddies of mine that are constantly trying, they, you know, they blow up trying to break 80, right? Yeah, right. Every Any, single anytime. time. Yeah. And so what I said to him, I was like, like, just try this. Throw away the scorecard. Yeah. And just grab a blank piece of paper and every time you make a stroke, make a line. <laughs> and like don't even cross a line through it to make a five, right? Just make it just a line. And just at the end of the round, add them up. And he went out the first time, shot a 78. Really? Because he wasn't thinking about it. He was just marking lines. He wasn't thinking like, oh no, I need to go par birdie or par par bogey to break 80. He yeah. just was drawing lines, so he didn't get think about That's the amazing. outcome. I wouldn't take the time to draw, but <laughs> uh, but pro ams are perfect examples of that. When they think they got a chance to win the pro am because they've made some ungodly shots, chip ins yeah. or whatever, and there's two holes left, and they want to know how many under they are, and I go and I try and say. Oh, you know what? The course is playing easy today. The guy, there's a lot of low scores out there. I'm not sure. I, I kind of mumble them off and yeah. don't tell them. You're playing psychologist out there. I did. I, I, that's the only thing I could do because it's true. Once you start counting your shots, whether you're breaking 100, 90, or 80, or 70, 60, whatever, it, once you're aware of your score, it gets harder. Let's say I can't say you oh, won't do true. it, but yeah, it gets hard because yeah. it's—I don't know—the psychology behind it. <laughs> well, you had four rounds, consecutive rounds in the '60s at what would become the Players' Championship. Like looking back, where, where does this victory stand in your career? So you've—you've you've obviously recorded the '59. You have a PGA Championship and the Players' Championship. Like, do you do you look back and say? It's like winning a major, or what did it? You know what I mean? Like, what did it feel well, like then? It was kind of it was new, so new, right? And we'd hoped it would be kind of a major someday, but the frustrating I think of now is the announcers don't like to go all the way back and acknowledge those few years. Once in a while, no, they do, yeah, you're right. They they don't acknowledge those first few years that were at different courses because mm -hmm. it went. It went uh, like we, I was talking about. We went uh, Atlanta Country Club, Colonial Club in Fort Worth, uh, Fort Worth Inverary in Miami. Then it went up to Sawgrass, Sawgrass Country, Country Club. Club. Yes. Not, not the TPC Club. No, no, Sawgrass. yeah. The Sawbass Country Club. Uh, and the wind would blow. And I remember hats rolling down the fairways. <laughs> J.C. Sneed, I was playing with him, his hat blew off on one green. I remember watching it roll all the way across his green, the green, and it rolled down and hit his ball. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. oh, no. Oh, no. We watched it, and we couldn't do anything about oh. it. Uh, that's when the winds really blew. And then, that, and then I remember Dean Beeman, about the second year we were there, he said he had a tour. He said, 
lined up where you, you I'm going to take you over and show you where our new course is going to be. Yeah, the swamp. The swamp, yeah. <laughs> so I was in one of my, the group that I went in, we went over there in a car, and then he had like a duck hunting thing way up in the air. To, you had to climb up the stairway to get up there. And we looked down, and we looked at this god-ugly swamp. I mean, it was... Terrible to look at, right? It was right. terrible. Yeah. It was... And he was proud he bought it for a dollar or something. I don't yeah, he got it cheap. You know, I had him on the podcast like two years ago. He talked about it. It's crazy. And you're going to build a course here? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll never forget. And all of us, same thing. We all looked at each other. There might have been six or eight of us up there. And we, we all kind of looked. He's already doing it, so what can we say? <laughs> That's huh? right, yeah. <laughs> PGA money well spent, right? Yeah. yeah. Turned out okay, though, didn't it? it Turned out did. okay. Of course, they had to change it a lot. They did. I heard there were with some uh, influence from the tour pros who came oh, in yeah. and didn't like the greens, I think, was some well, of the... if they didn't like this or that. I was pretty well... I only played there once or twice. I was pretty well on my way out then. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. See, they only gave... They gave me a five-year exemption for winning the players. Now, you'd think I'd have longer than that. <laughs> but they it's like all these great courses they become great after they're changed and changed tweaked and changed. yeah <laughs> so let's get into to the 59 so i'll give you a little tidbit here uh, my daughter who was out on the range outside here at la quinta country club i don't think she's out there anymore um this morning i was telling her that uh, i was interviewing al guyberger mr 59 and she said um Who's Al Guyberger? She's 16 years old, doesn't know anything, of course. But um, I said, oh, uh, you know, he won the PGA Championship and the Players' Championship, and he was the first man to shoot 59. And she kind of looked at me like, now, the one thing you have in common with my daughter is you both shot 59. She did it for nine holes. Uh-huh. It was her first tournament round. I told her you, you did it for 18 holes. I and she, a lot of people will say, I shot 59. <laughs> For nine holes. And yeah. I say, okay, you're in the club. Then. <laughs> That's right. Here's, but a, I, here's a, my business card. Oh, let's see it. By the way, she said when I oh, no, it's the scorecard. Can I have one? How's the scorecard? Can I have this? Yeah. Oh, this is great. It's the scorecard, folks. It bends in half. That is unbelievable. I hear you. Okay, I need, I'm going to need another one. My you father-in-law is going to want one, too. Um, but I, I, I told her you were the first person to shoot 59. She goes, for 18 holes? <laughs> I mean, just She was blown away yeah. by it. And uh, I, I don't know. I just I find that fascinating. So prior to that, you won. Well, or I should say, overall, you won eleven times on PGA Tour. You had uh, ten top ten finishes in majors. You won the 1966 PGA Championship, the 1975 Players Championship. But you're remembered for doing the impossible, breaking the impossible barrier in 1977 at the Memphis Classic, like Roger Bannister breaking yeah. the four minute mile. Right. You That's broke a barrier. Did. That's what people related. To. Yeah, you broke a barrier that golfers had not even dreamed of in yeah. like the last, you know, 200 years. That's 118 years after Alan Robertson became the first golfer to break 79. Now, you, you still, even though players, I don't know, 10, 11, I'm shot at now, but the announcers will say, oh, we have a 59 alert. They still use the number 59. They do. Not 58. Nope. They say 59 alert. There's alert going, you know, and uh, it's so special, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a barrier. Yeah. Uh, now to defend my fifty nine, 
I don't think you have to defend it, by the way. Well, I, I will, before you yeah, say but this. Somebody, you tell somebody 58, but he was 12 under yeah. for 18 holes. I was 13. Yeah. And there's only 18 holes out there. So we've always argued that fact, you know, well, you, you got more chances yeah. or you don't. Yeah. I would argue it this way. So I don't know. It was, it was, I did this for the Society of Golf Historians. I ranked all of the sub-60 rounds. And I did it. I did it without even factoring in the equipment, which, by the way, should blow all arguments away. Your persimmons and and butter <laughs> blades. But actually, if you look at it, if you look at the distance you played from, and the slope and and the slope yeah. rating for the course, you have the hardest sub sixty round in the history of golf. You, not even considering the equipment. You guys did that. I did. That's yeah. what I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. I think that was great. You did that, and you ranked a slope score for. Wind, course condition, length of course, par, I didn't fa- yeah. how many under par, all those things, and you gave it a slope rating, right? Yeah. I think that was great. You ought to do it again. I, I'll do it again. But the funny thing is, I didn't even factor in the equipment. I mean, we're oh. not talking about Pro V1s or Stratas, I think, you know. Uh, right. But, I, you know, we're talking about a wound ball, a spinny ball, right? We're talking about persimmon woods yeah, wound ball, persimmon and butter blades. Woods. Right? Your blades yeah. were like, they made yeah. blades of today look like cavity backs. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Well, let me get back to this because you said this about the PGA Championship and you had that epiphany while playing your practice round. Did you ever have that moment prior to the second round where you shot the 59? Did you have that moment like on the practice range that you knew something great was going to come? Or did it just start off, you start off on 10? I think you went yeah. birdie, birdie right off the bat. What Did it start like that? Yeah. No, I had no... Really? I had seen what the scores were the day before and what the cut was. So I, you're kind of always aware of the cut. And I think it was going to be 144 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so you're playing for the cut almost? I mean, like you're well, thinking... Well, not really, but you kind of have that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, right. So I had seventy. What did I have the first round? Seventy-two? No, seventy. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. That's right. Well, you were well back. I know that. Yeah. You had to make up no, some. No, there weren't that many. The the low scores weren't very. Yeah. Nobody had any low rounds. Uh, but I shot. Okay. All right. Seventy-two, fifty-nine. 7270. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's crazy. No, no rounds in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> Just skipped it all together. Yeah, right. That's that's another record. Right. 72. Wow. 59 7270. That's unbelievable. And that's a score of 27 Is that 15 under par? Yeah, what would that Some mathematician said that's absolutely impossible. To shoot that total without a round in the 60s. Oh, really? Yeah, some mathematician. I can see that. I mean, because who's shooting a 59, right? Yeah, because I was, and not be in the 60s. See, if you shot 273, I think it was, 273, you'd have to have three rounds in the 60s and maybe one in the low 70s. To get 263. Yeah. I had no rounds in the 60s. And he said, mathematically, that is close to impossible. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, that, I mean, that says how special it was all by itself. 
Was it, was there a moment in that second round? Like, when do you know that you're on a heater? When did well, you know it was going thing. well? Yeah. You don't shoot 59 or something great by burning the first four holes because you, the count, you, you know, you're already into it too much and then you start thinking. Yeah. See, I buried the first hole with about a 40 footer and parred the second and buried the third with about a 15 footer and parred the fourth. And the fifth, then I went birdie, 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 birdie. Now, if you were going along with me, could you count then how many under? I mean, that's crazy. You're lost. Yeah. Then I go over to 10 and chip it in for an eagle. Eagle, right. Do I have any idea how many under I am? So was there, there weren't scoreboards up then, I assume. I'll get it. Yeah. There weren't, were there scoreboards up at the tournament or was there a walking score in your uh, group that you knew exactly where you were or were you just... Kind of going through the I motions. I remember on 18 there was one, but I didn't really look. I don't think. Because um, then I went off one where I chipped it in, uh, my 10th hole, but it was my the first hole. That's where I made the eagle. And then, then I went birdie, birdie. I had no idea. And I didn't. You I just don't knew think it was good. I don't remember looking at the board that much. So it was, there were boards out there because Ken still, uh, Ken, he passed away what, a couple of years ago. He was a professional rooter, and he and I were, he would root for two ants crossing a sidewalk. <laughs> he saw this Geiberger nine under par or something. Then he'd run to the next scoreboard. Wherever he was, he'd run across the fairway and look at the scoreboard. And they, they said he went ballistic watching, watching me climb all the way to 13. Yeah. <laughs> did you have, did, did the crowds around you grow as that went on? I mean, yeah. was there awareness? in the crowd that something special was happening because it had never been done. So it's not like, it's not like yeah. a 59 alert right now you see on TV, right? Like yeah. it now, wasn't even a concept. When I made the uh, birdie, 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 eagle, birdie, birdie. Oh, what a stretch. Then I made two pars and they felt like bogeys. And I tell people, so whenever you have this big run going and you make a, a par, it's, I'll warn you, it's going to feel like a bogey. It did. Yeah. It was <laughs> weird. Uh, then... I had a little talk to myself because the gallery couldn't get there, and I walked down this into this little and back up to this tee, and it's hot and sweaty and horrible, and I'm by myself, and I said, "Wait a minute, you got you got something going here. What are you going to do? Make quick bogey and get out of this, or are you yeah. going to go for it?" And I went, "Well, God, you're hitting it perfect. You've hit every fairway, every green, and basically hold every putt." And so I said. Okay, my coach in college, Stan Wood, always told me that I was always a little too conservative. I needed to be more aggressive. So I said, okay, coachy, I'm talking to myself. Yeah. And this is true. Okay, coachy, I'm going to go for it. And if I screw this up, it's your fault. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I what, love it. That was my little talk to myself. And I, blew, I love it. blew it right down the middle of the fairway. It, uh, I think an eight iron up on the green and hold about a 10 footer. And the gallery started yelling 59. Oh, really? Otherwise, I hadn't even thought of it. So I still had, I knew 59 with three holes to go, but I, I was hitting it so good. That, I mean, uh, you still, three holes to go, you still had to go two under over those three. I mean, that's no, ta if I said to you, like, you know, Al, let's go out. I need you to birdie two of the next three holes. Yeah. You'd look at me like. That's not how the game works, Connor. Yeah, I know. You know? You know, I just, 
I guess I had a way of blocking them out. I just, you know, you're up in a different, you can't put yourself in that zone. You know, yeah. you know I've had writers and <clears throat> psychologists, you know, what's the zone feel like and all that? And I go, well, I know it's something you can't just put yourself in. You have to play yourself into it. Whatever way it happens, all of a sudden you're like basketball. They can't miss. Just keep going. Same thing in golf. You can't miss every putt. Uh, but you kind of did talk yourself back into the zone, right? I mean, oh, you made those two pars, t- and you that, had that, on you know. T where I yeah. said, okay, Coachy. We called him Coachy. Okay, Coachy, if I screw this up, it's your fault. And I, I mean, I love that. Because yeah. you're basically saying the pressure's not on me. It's on you, Coachy. It's your fault. <laughs> yeah, it's you. Yeah. You I took did. yourself out of that, yeah, right? I, and I, just I said. I haven't made that story up. That actually, my little talk to myself, like, what do I do? I'm in this. Because you are. All of a sudden, you're in a, a big mess, and the gallery's going crazy. Well, I was lucky. The tee was back there, and they had it roped off so the people couldn't go back there. Uh, and I had a moment. I just remember hang, climbing up the hill to the tee. It was so hot and sweaty and, and awful. But the next hole, the three holes left, this mm-hmm. my 16th hole, there's where I did something. When you're hot, you're hot. You know you are. It's par five, and you can see on there I birdied it. I hit a, two shots further than I've ever hit on that hole, closer to the green. It's a long par five. And I had a, had a pitching wedge, and I was coming in the long way. This, the, the green had bunkers in front, and I was over at the left, and the, the fairway kind of went over there, and I was coming in this way. And, I, and that was the seventh hole. But I forgot to tell you this. That seventh hole comes back to the clubhouse. Now, how many courses will the seventh hole come back to the clubhouse? That course has seven and nine and 18 all at the clubhouse. You were asking, were people out there? Yeah, were, well, yeah, were they were they'd they finding already you? Started yes. com- players were coming out of the clubhouse. Amazing. After I walked off that green, I went, oh, my God, the players are all out here watching me. But anyway, I hit this wedge up here. That's what I wanted to tell you. When you're hot, you're hot. I ended up there about 10 feet. I'm past the hole, but the bleachers go right up to the green and go right around the green. And they're just right down. The people are sitting right there. They feel like they're right on top of you, like, like that wall behind yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's no air movement at all because they've You can hear them breathing, I yeah. I can't breathe. And I had this about eight, nine-footer, I guess. And... I got over it, and I hit it, and I knew I'd made it. And I felt like it went about this far, and I turned around and looked up at the gallery. Well, on the film, it shows I did turn around, but it had gone a little further. (laughs) To me, my system, a while to record. But I turned around and held my hands up in the air, and the ball's still rolling. No way. That's amazing. Yeah. And then that night I go, what in the hell were you doing? You could have easily. These were heavy, grainy. Yeah. It's not manicured like they are out here, right? Yeah. That's what the player yesterday said. You wouldn't believe the greens. They were grainy, grainy greens that kill anybody. Yeah, that's why you see those wristy strokes, right? I watched the people shoot up out of the bleachers. I'm the only one that got to see that. (laughs) And you didn't. You were the only one in that group that didn't see the ball fall in. No, I didn't see it. <laughs> and then they lost all the footage. Remember, that was yes. lost. And then the, 
It was found, a, a, a gentleman found it in his attic, and and when I was so excited to watch it because I wanted to see if I really did turn around. Yeah, whether you remembered it wrong. <laughs> yeah. and Yeah. Actually, it was about this far from the hole when, when I had turned around, but Still. that's by the time I had turned around. So your mind is... It's always fooling information. Hundred percent. Yeah. So let so me then ask. The next hole is a long par five, four. Excuse me, seventeen. And I hit a driver, uh, like a, a five iron out of the bottom. And then at eighteen, I hit a good drive. You parred uh, the seventeenth hole, yeah. right? So two, you're two putted, You're so. right. I mean, if you par the eighteenth, it's a sixty. And if you birdie yeah, it, right. you get a fifty-nine. Right. No pressure. Yeah, but you're. Did you know? I mean, did you know that's what you needed? Yeah, but hole? you're you're rolling you're rolling yeah. you're you're in the zone. You got Kochi on your back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I hit a big drive out there, and uh, and my caddy said uh, he wanted me. Actually, I talked like he'd had no teeth. He wanted me to hit the <laughs> pitching wedge, and because uh, it was 129 yards. Well, I can't hit a pitching wedge 129 yards, especially then. Yeah. Uh, and I knew it was about 120, so I said, no, I'm going to hit an easy 9-iron because I want the ball back there where the pin is, in the back. And I yeah. went, afterwards I said, you know what? I would have normally hit a hard pitching wedge, but yeah. I had so much confidence going, I went with an easy 9-iron. Wow. I mean, that's hard to could, do. You could easily miss it. Yeah. yeah, well, and he's probably thinking adrenaline's coming into play. You hit that pitching wedge. And, yeah, but yeah. you felt it, though. You. And you were I, in there. Sure enough, I put it back there about 10 feet, pin high. So before you get there, you're now looking at a 10-foot putt. Is there a little break, a lot of break? What are we looking at for break? Well, Do you remember? Walk, when you're hot, you're hot. When you walk up to a putt when you're hot, you know the break. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you feel good over it. I mean, yeah, how you much? Know, do you feel uh, any pressure? Well, I had to wait for everybody else to yep. putt out and chip out and... How do you maintain your mindset while they're putting? Are you, you staring around, at the you clouds? Walk circles. <laughs> yeah, you're just in anxious energy. Yeah. Anxious. Yeah. You just yeah. It's not you know it's there, so you can't do anything yeah. about. It. And uh, a cute story from that too. Dave Stockton was having a terrible day, and he chipped up and he wanted to get the hell out of there. I beat him by 18 shots. He knew he'd miss the cut and he wanted to get the hell out of there. So he chipped up. Went up, let me get this out of the way, putted. Now, Jerry McGee, he putted up about above the hole a little bit, about a three-footer, and I went, you want to putt? Like winners do. They sure. let the others. And he blew me off. No, no. And uh, he had a tough little putt with, and with the grain mixed in there. Yeah. And I asked him about a month later when I saw him, I said, Jerry, how come... You didn't putt out because you, he said, Al, he gets real excited. I was so excited. <laughs> for you. He said, for me. Yeah. He said, I could see miracles, history being made. He said, and I, I knew I had a tricky, tough little mm. putt. And if I missed it, I didn't want you to miss it. Yeah. I just got if chills. If you were going to miss it, I wanted you to miss it all on your own. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a kindness then. Really? Yeah. I mean, wasn't that, that, that's big. Yeah. Thinking ahead, he said, if you were going to miss it, I wanted you to do it on your own. Yeah. You don't <laughs> want to see me do something bad in front of you. You just want to clear the way. Yeah. I, if you're going to miss it, you do it. I'm not going to miss mine. Cause, and he made his. Yeah. He ended up finishing third in the tournament, I think. Uh, so, he, so he marks his ball. 
It's now your turn, right? Yeah. You're, you got to tend like walk me through your putting routine. Walking up to that, I waved to him. You want to putt? And, yep. Which, in fact, he was walking up to market. I waved him. That's right. No, he hadn't gotten to his. He hadn't marked it yet. He was still walking up to it, and I waved to him to putt out. And he turned me down, so I wasn't, I wasn't going to act twice because you were asking, "What do you do when you're yeah, waiting? Yeah, walking just around keep in a going, circle. I right. want to get it over with." Yeah, and so uh, he told me that about a month later, and I thought, "Wow, that's really smart thinking." That because you'll see a guy miss a tricky putt, and it can influence 100%. like scramble. You see guys miss sure. putts, so uh, so you it's your turn. You're you're looking at your putt. What what what, what was your putting routine? Like, did you look at it from both sides? How did you treat that last putt? You know, I, I knew when I walked up there, the grain was straight into me, but angled crossways. Like okay. Dave Stockton. <laughs> Dave There's Stockton. Dave Stockton calling. He wants to hear the 59 story, folks. We just started talking about Dave Stockton is literally calling Al Guyberger right now. That is funny. <laughs> he wants to be part of history. He wants to relive it. Wait till I tell him. <laughs> And he, and we were, I was on he the just 18th. wants to get off the green, and yet he wants to be part of our story I'm on now. The green on the 18th hole. <laughs> oh, oh, what? I mean, you can't time that. That was perfect, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, I hope you folks heard that at home. He so said, yeah, Al Guyberger's yeah. phone starts ringing. It says Dave Stockton's yeah. calling him, and he has some negative thing. Oh, that's awesome. He would. He he loves to tell the story because he was playing with me, and it's kind of like two different versions. But uh, anyway, so I got over the pot. I, I didn't take long because I already knew. I knew yeah. grain was in me coming across. And if, you, if grain is into you, you got to hit it hard. And the grain is going to move it this way. It's not going to curve. Yeah, it's going to move it away. It's yeah. going to go in leaps. So yeah. you, you learn to be very positive in, in that type of Bermuda then. Nowadays, it, they've cut it down so much better that it's... Uh, Greens are, you know, vertical, narrow, so much better now. And I remember I said, whatever you do, don't leave it short. That was darn my, right, my darn right. And I, I hit the thing, and I felt, oh my God, <laughs> like it went off of my hand, and it went up there and went, boom! It just dove in like a basketball. And everyone goes crazy. Yeah, because oh, they've yeah. never seen anything that like that before. Right? Yeah, because by then the gallery all knew. See, <clears throat> and I was relieved. Uh, I like that your first thought isn't you're like happy or you're like, you're relieved was your first instinct is like, oh. Well, I looked at it. I jumped about that far, which I had a Phil Mickelson. Yeah, a little jump. vertical. Yeah, I didn't have much vertical. You know, hands in the air and all that. I ran around. And my caddy, I saw he kept the ball. He, you see him in the video running over to get the ball. Right. Because there, I only used one ball that day. No, he, he made sure. That, oh. Because we didn't change balls. Yeah. And ben, it was, I played a Ben Hogan ball because Spalding didn't have a a ball. Yeah. They didn't have a ball then because they had come out with the top flight. Remember the top flight? Came I do. Out yeah. I just did a story about that. That's uh, Spalding. a story. Yeah. I can tell you that. Yeah. Uh, Where's that ball today? Well, Ben Hogan Company bought it from the. No, they bought it. Yeah, they bought it. And donated the money to St. Jude. Oh, that, nice. That was their thing. And gave the ball to the Hall of Shame. Oh, Hall of Shame. <laughs> I'll we, edit that out. Say it, say it again. Say it again. We'll edit out Hall of Shame. <laughs> <laughs> Hall, of, Hall of Shame. That's what we all players call. 
where we keep all our stuff in our house. That's our hall of shame. Love it. <laughs> Love it. That's that fantastic. That's my friend Van in Florida. I have a question from one of our listeners had a question for you. And his question was, he didn't mention the toothless caddy, but he was curious if your caddy started to treat you any differently during the round, like a pitcher and his team might treat a, a perfect game. What do you think? He got quieter. Did he get really yeah. quiet? Did he stop yeah, suggesting Lee, golf clubs? The, Lee, the caddy, is a, a specimen himself. He's obnoxious. Players only use him three weeks and give him to somebody else and give him to somebody else. He's a legend on the tour. And he's not too educated. And he get words all mixed up and everything like that. But uh, he would say too much on the golf course. But that round, he as the really round quiet. went, he got quieter and quieter and quieter. Love it. So I don't remember anything other than her, him telling her you to take the pitchy wedge. Pitcher, I don't know. And, uh, yeah. So the answer is no. He got quieter and quieter, and he grabbed that ball and kept it to make sure there was that's good. No mix up. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this question. I, maybe they have. Uh, what is harder? Is it harder to shoot a 59 to come or to come back the next day and have to play a third round after shooting a 59? Because the pressure. Yeah, you're, t- you're tired. It's hot again. Yeah. There. Oh, my and, you're, God. and I'm playing late again. It's hot. And you have to be mentally and worn down. I'm going off the first tee, the people, it's like an accident. They all come over and look at the accident after it happened. <laughs> right. They all came over and wanted to see me shoot 59 uh, again. And what I'm is like, that like? And I'm going, because they said, shoot another 59. They're yelling this. And I'm going. They gotta be kidding. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, was that a harder round? That third round than, you know, coming back after? I just can't even imagine. I, I'll give you yeah. my my best round ever, and it was nowhere near yours. It was playing playing for like sixty five hundred yards. I got into the zone, and somehow I laughed my my way through it, and I never got out of it. And I shot a sixty three, and it was an amazing round for me. I was a huh? one handicap at the time. Wow. It was just stupid round. And, um, you know, I was, I, I, I was so excited. I went out the next day and I shot a 77 one to break every club in my bag. Cause I thought that, you know, it's not that I expected to do it again, but I thought that I'd, I'd broken this mythical barrier yeah. and this was the new golfer that I am now. I'm this guy that shoots in the sixties. Uh, That's not how it works out. Well, I've still got two more rounds. Exactly. Time, I know. And it's hot and I'm under the pressure of leading and, but, uh, all I did was do the same thing, and I hit the ball basically the same. Yeah. All the way around. Hit, I don't know if I hit every fairway and every green, but it felt like it. Uh, nobody's ever counted that up. And uh, I felt like I played as good or better and shot 72. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and people think that's blowing up. No, <laughs> no. I mean, I think, I know this might be the wrong thing to say, but I think what's as astonishing as shooting a 59 is, you know, when you shot that 59, you were not blowing out the other players. It was a tight match yeah, for the third and fourth round, and you won that tournament. There would be a lot of people who might break 60. I went from 72 to 59 and had a six-shot lead on the field. Yeah. Yeah. And then shot 72 and 72 then 70 in the last and round. And had a three-shot three lead. Yeah. I mean, you were right in the thick of it, yeah. and you won the tournament. Like, that's... Yeah, I don't know how. It was a lot of... I look back, and it's... It's like you're talking a lot of pressure. In fact, the last day, 
lead my three, played with Gary Player, and who was my third? I can't remember. But Gary Player caught me by the ninth hole. Right. Now, things happen sometimes for a good. Now, I was starting to wear down from the 59 and all that. I can only imagine. And I was... And I was now I'd lost my lead. He birdied nine. He had the lead. And I remember the long walk from the ninth green over to the to the tenth tee was a long walk. And again, I had a little talk with myself. It gave me time. The it was like the monkey came off my back. It wasn't okay. You take it. I'm tired of holding on to the lead. Right. And and it relaxed me enough. Okay. I'm. Tired of it, and I shot 32 on the backside to win by three or four. I can't yeah. even remember that. Yeah, you just convinced yourself, like, hey, just go play yeah. golf. It took the pressure off, which was wearing me down. Yeah. Took it off, see? And again, things happen by mistake, you know, or by, by good or bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, I find this about, this is just from my limited experience with amateur golfers, but... Um, when you, when you have a professional golfer, especially of your stature, when you get on a heater, right, when you find that zone, you accept it, right? You accept, like, I'm in the zone. Yeah. I'm going to go low today. I find that the amateur golfer gets out there and uh, whatever their stature is, if, maybe it's parring the first six holes or maybe it's birding yeah, the first six holes. They go on defense. But, as, yes, as soon they don't accept it, their mindset is usually like, I hope this lasts. Yeah, hope. They're hoping. Right? Yeah. And hope kills. Yeah, right? Hope, hope, as yeah. soon as they par or bogey or double or whatever that is, they've assumed that it's over. The streak yeah. is over. So yeah, if you were nice. talking to an amateur golfer in that regard, I mean, you know, I, you know you what I notice the players say nowadays, and we never said this. Some probably practiced it, but if they did say it, I thought they were lying was, I love having the lead. I love being in contention in the lead. And I, and I want to, that's where I'm comfortable. They, they, the psychologists have gotten to them to say, accept the lead and go for it. And that's what you're there for. Well, I don't know if I really thought that way. <laughs> how did you feel then? What did, how, how did you approach it? I, I, I guess I did that a little bit, but not 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 like they talk about now. Yeah. You know, now now they they uh, they they love the lead. They want the lead. They and it's good to be nervous. That's good to be nervous yeah. and all that stuff. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. You yet. just pushed through it. Right? Yeah. We yeah we didn't tell each other. Oh, I'm really nervous or anything. We didn't do it. We, or or you don't admit that you. Were, I loved being in the pressure of the whole thing. I don't know. I don't remember ever hearing it. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, you say that, but it's funny what you did talking to Kochi, right? Yeah. It's kind of, you, you took that pressure off your shoulders yeah, in that moment, that, which definitely. is really cool, right? I did. Okay, Coach, I like on my shoulder. Okay, Coach, if I screw this up, it's your fault. Yeah. And, and I did. I yeah. Did that, honest, I didn't make that up or anything. Well, maybe that's a lesson for uh, amateur golfers out there. When you're having you know, that, that great round and you want to keep it going and you hit a rough, rough patch, you know, find a way to defer that pressure. Relish the pressure. I go, go for it. That's the fun of it. In other words, don't shy away from it. You know? Yeah. I hear them all saying that on TV now. <laughs> yeah. It's so common. 
Al Guyberger, Mr. 59, thank you so much for coming on Talking Golf History. Really, I had a good conversation with you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, well, it's nice to be called on once in a while and talk a little. You know, when you're going through history, you don't know it's history until way back. Oh I think God. you knew when you sank that 10-foot putt for a 59. Oh, 59, yeah. <laughs> thank you again, Al. I appreciate it. Okay, that was fun. Al Guyberger, the peanut butter kid, Skippy, and who could ever forget Mr. 59? I hope you end this podcast with a new appreciation for Al Guyberger. He did much more than break the invincible barrier of 60. As for me, the measure of man has never been the weight of his trophy case or the number on his scorecard. I measure a man by his character, and in my book, Al Guyberger is a Hall of Famer. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.